the blue book sitting on the table, the Chumash, the so-called five books of Moses, is not the Jewish equivalent of the New York Times. Not even the London Times. It's not meant for casual, informal perusal over a cup of tea before you get back to serious matters and uh, you know, sort of bedtime stories to put you to sleep. It requires careful, precise study. And when you do that, you often find that what you thought it said just isn't there. And in fact, something quite different is there. What I want to do this afternoon is take you through the story of the golden calf. Uh, it is almost universally questioned. How could it be a mere 40 days after the revelation at Sinai that the whole of the Jewish people worshipped an idol? How could that be? Well, not every question deserves an answer. Tell me, have you stopped beating your wife? Yes or no? Well, um, actually, have I stopped beating my wife? Uh, if I say yes, that means I was beating her, right? And if I say no, it means I'm still beating her. I don't think I want to answer that question. Because that question is based on a presupposition which isn't correct. The truth is I have never beaten my wife, and therefore have I stopped beating her isn't the right question to ask me. How could the whole of the Jewish people have worshipped an idol 40 days after Sinai? It's based on the presupposition that they did worship an idol. Let's open the book and go through the story literally and see what happened. And then we'll discover whether or not this is... Thank you. Is a question that should be asked or shouldn't be asked. It starts on page 493. Now we're going to go through twice. First time through, I'm just going to note difficulties, interesting observations vis-a-vis -vis the question of idol worship. There's a raft of material I'm ignoring because it isn't relevant to idol worship. And I'm not going to answer the questions. We're just going to gather data. It's a good strategy to gather all the data and peruse it before you start theorizing as to what the data means or how to explain it. Otherwise, you get trapped in premature conclusions. And then we'll go back to it a second time, and I'll show you how it can be explained and understood clearly with one basic fundamental idea. And then we'll have an, a picture as to what it says and what it doesn't say. Chapter 32. The people saw that Moses delayed in descending the mountain. And the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Rise up, make for us gods that will go before us. For this man Moses, who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what became of him. Now, of course, they say, make us gods. At least, that's what the English says. And when you read that, you say, well, of course it's idol worship. They say, make us gods. Well, contrary to common practice, let us not close our minds at this point. Let us keep our minds open and look at the rest of the information. What do they want the gods for? 
Well, they say so. What do they say? That will go before us. Now, in ancient times, the gods did almost everything. They gave you life, they gave you fertility, they gave you victory in war, they gave you good weather. To suggest a change of religion, make us gods whose only function is to lead you. Of course, you're in the wilderness, you would like to be led, that's true. But it should be understood why it is that they are choosing them for this purpose and this purpose only. Second of all, what is the problem they are facing which motivates them to ask for God? Moses disappeared, right? Is there an obvious connection between the disappearance of the leader and changing your religion? When the king dies, you make a new religion? There's no obvious relationship between the problem and the solution. These are two things which we would like to understand to make sense out of the story as we go along. Somebody's writing this down. That's good. Keep being honest. Make sure you make a list of all the questions so I'll answer all of them when we come back. Good. That's two problems. Forward. <clears throat> Aaron said to them, Remove the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, sons, and daughters and bring them to me. The entire people removed the gold rings that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Whether they did what they were told or not is an interesting side question. I might get to it if I have time, but it's not directly relevant. He took it from their hands, bound it up in a cloth, fashioned it into a molten calf. Now watch this. They said, these are your gods. It's the same words as in the first line of the, of the, of the book, first line of the page. So to translate it consistently with their position, it should read, these are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This sentence has at least three difficulties. They said, these are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. What questions here leap to mind that need to be answered? Why does it say one? Why does it say God? Yeah, I mean, it says, the way I'm translating it, it says gods, yeah. even though they made only one, one statue. Right. Why should it be plural? Good. What else leaps to your mind as difficult here? Yeah, I mean, after all, uh, you just made it now, and uh, you're attributing to it an action to the place three months ago. That's a little peculiar. And then as he uh, uh, interjected, who's the they? Up to this point in the story, there are two subjects, Aaron and the people. Now you have a they who say, these are your gods, O Israel. So who are they? There's no antecedent for they in the story. Good. We have three questions here. We have a total of five questions so far. All right. Now comes verse 5. Verse 5 is a bomb. Watch carefully. Aaron saw, built an altar before him. Aaron called out and said, A festival for Hashem tomorrow. Now, H-A-S-H-E-M in English replaces the proper Hebrew name of the Jewish God in Hebrew. A yud and a hey and a vav and a hey. This word, this name in Hebrew, has no cognate in any ancient language. In modern language, has cognates because the Christians and the Muslims took it from us. How could you imagine that the proposal is to get a new religion, and yet Aaron calls out, makes a public announcement, that tomorrow we're having a festival to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses. Something's gone off the tracks here. Good. Forward. They arose early the next day, offered up elevation offerings, brought peace offerings. 
the people sat to eat and drink, and they got up to revel. Hashem spoke to Moses, Go descend, for your people that you brought up from the land of Egypt has become corrupt. Here there's a little question. Um, husband's on his way home from work, calls wife on the cell phone, says to her, how do things go today? And she says, do you know what your son did today? And he says, uh-oh, if he's my son, it must be bad. <laughs> if it had been good, it would be our son. But if it's my son already, then something's wrong. Right? God says to Moses, your people, that's a little peculiar. Aren't they God's people? At least also? Why should God sort of push them off onto Moses? We'll come back to that. At any rate, they become corrupt. Now watch 8. 8 is very important. And watch how I change the translation. The translation is a little bit inaccurate here. They have strayed quickly from the way that I have commanded them, comma. They have made themselves a molten calf, semicolon. They prostrated themselves to it and sacrificed to it. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel. I'm making it consistent with the previous. Which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Verse 8 is an indictment. It's a list of the crimes that they have committed. I would like you to read verse 8 and tell me how many crimes, how many criminal actions, how many indictable offenses do you have listed in this sentence? Now, I've asked the question three times, and you're not ten-year-olds, so it can't be exactly trivial. Three. Okay, I hear three. Do I hear four? <laughs> I have several people with five. I have six. Anybody for seven? Four or five. Four or five. He's already splitting his ticket well, now. No, no, no. Okay, okay. One side, one side. We'll, we'll get it. I hear three. Okay. You have six. Okay. The first person said six. Let, let's hear who the one who says six. What do you think the six are? And then we'll see others who say they're smaller, why they say it's less. Who said six? Okay. Let's hear the six. All right. Um, they strayed quickly from, from the way that I've commanded them. That's one. Okay. Uh, they made themselves a, a molten calf and idol. Two. So, you know, image. Uh, they bowed to it. Three. To it. They sacrificed to it. Four. Uh, they said, this is, this, is, uh, this is your God, Israel. Okay, five. They, and they attributed the taking out of Egypt to this thing. Okay, that's, that's interesting. Okay, that's six. Right now, are those who are the, uh, those who want to contest some of those and say that they're really not or, or, or something wrong with that list of six? Yeah. Okay, so either you could say that it's just okay. So I think that the whole they straight quickly from the way they've commanded them is just he's just saying, you know, they've gone away, but that's not actually the crime itself. The crime itself was that they made the calf, they were started praying to it, they sacrificed to it, and then it's just and then. You know, the statement they say that this is your God of Israel was probably up from Egypt. That's okay. Just... Listen to what he says. I think you have the right, exactly right uh, observation here. Listen to what he says. Let me give you an analogy. Now I'll come back to it. So I think this is the exact, exact right point. The policeman brings in a criminal to the judge. And he says to the judge, I caught him committing three crimes. The judge says, what did he do? And the policeman says, he stole a car. So the judge writes down, auto theft. And the policeman says, he ran a red light. So the... Uh, judge writes down a traffic infraction and then the policeman says and the third crime he committed is he broke the law that's not a third crime 
There's no crime called breaking the law. You can't have a law that says don't break the law. That law doesn't say anything. You need an independently described action and then say, don't do that action. Now, they strayed quickly from the path which I've commanded them does not describe an action which is illegal. It's just a general statement that things have gone wrong. And then you have a list of all the things that went wrong, which you could count as four or five. I don't mind whether you split it the way you split it or you don't split it. The key point that I'm interested in is that the first clause here is not the description of another crime. It is some kind of introduction to the list of crimes. Now, look at the end of seven. <clears throat> the end of seven, God already says to Moses, they become corrupt. So we know things have gone wrong. The question becomes, what is the introduction in eight doing there? What function does it serve? What do I need the first clause in eight for? Okay, I, I'm not, we're not looking for answers now, right? We're just surveying the data. We're just making a, a, a list of things that have to be explained. The first clause in eight has to be explained. It's not obvious what it's doing there. Okay, now comes a long passage where God says, I'm going to destroy them, and Moses pleads on their behalf. It's fascinating, it's interesting, it's full of all sorts of variable information, but it's not relevant to idol worship. So I'm going to skip, except one passage, which is too subtle for us to go into here. Skip to 501. Moses comes down from the mountain, and he burns the idol and grinds it up into, into, into dust and he makes them he sprinkles it on the water and they drink it and now finally verse 26 top of the page Moses stood at the gateway of the camp and he said whoever is for Hashem join me and all the Levites gathered around him he said to them so said Hashem the God of Israel every man put his sword on his thigh passed back and forth from the gate to the gate of the camp let every man kill his brother every man his fellow every man his near one the Levites did as Moses said, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. And you want to ask, what makes them different from everybody else? How many people are we talking about? 600,000 men over the age of 20, an equal number of women. A million two hundred thousand people, about three thousand, and when it says men, it means men, because it says men of the people, it means no women. About three thousand men are executed on the spot. They have to be different from everybody else. If everybody is engaged in the identical crime, then everybody should get the identical treatment. So something funny is going on here. You have to explain why these people are treated differently from everybody else. Now, skip to the bottom of the page, thirty-five. Hashem struck the people with a plague. Because they made the calf which Aaron had made. So there was a plague also. Some number of people died in the plague. The Ramban says nowhere is it recorded how many people died. But since there's a census of the people shortly before the event, and a census afterwards, and it differs by only some thousands, so we're not talking about a big percentage. Let's say, I'm just picking this number to, so we'll have a, a figure to talk about. Let's say 15,000 people as a total. 15,000 people out of a million two hundred thousand die. So, something has to be done to explain why they're different. And if we got into it, why these are killed by the Levites and those are killed by the plague, there's a puzzle here that has to be solved. Okay, verse 30. On the next day, Moses said to the people, You've committed a grievous sin. 
and now I shall ascend to Hashem. Perhaps I can win atonement in the face of your sin. Moses returned to Hashem and said, I implore, this people has committed a grievous sin and made themselves, now if it were consistent as a translation, it says, hey, gods of gold. And now if you would but forgive their sin, and he leaves that unfinished, if you forgive them, good, then I'm happy, I'm satisfied. And if not, erase me now from the book that you've written, and God says, don't tell me how to write my book. Now let's see what's going on here. Moses is functioning like a defense attorney, and he goes to the judge. He says, Your Honor, my client is guilty. Capital G. I have no defense for him. I have no excuse for him. I admit guilt. It's beyond contest. But I'm asking for mercy. He's guilty, and he deserves to be punished. I'm asking him to be merciful and not punish him. Okay. What crimes is the client guilty of? Well, he made the idol, and he prostrated himself to it, and he offered sacrifices to it, and he said that this is the God that took you out of Egypt. A whole long list of crimes. Now, what does Moses say? My client is guilty. They made themselves the idol. Please forgive them, or if not. I think if he were my defense attorney, I'd be on the cell phone, you know, with an emergency call. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You left out all the difficult stuff, you know. Okay, so we made it. That's true, and it would be nice not to punish for that. But what are you saying to the judge? Don't punish them for making it, but for prostrating and for, for sacrifices and identifying as God, it's okay to be punished for that? That's far worse. It's far worse to bow down, to offer sacrifices and to say it's God, than it is to just manufacture it. Manufacturing is a crime, that's true, but it's not comparable to actually worshipping it. Why is Moses asking for mercy for the least significant crime and leaving the great, terrible crimes without any uh, address, without any, without any um, uh, plea for mercy. It's very peculiar. Now, the first moral to derive here is this. If you don't have answers to these questions, you don't know what the story says. And if you know what it says, explaining it is out of place. What comes before why? You have to know what it is before you try to explain why it is. This is true all over. One of the most famous experts in evolution said that uh, the evolutionists are always trying to explain why before they know what it is they're trying to explain. They don't invest enough in figuring out what the thing does before they try to figure out where it came from. It's one of the many problems with evolution. Okay, now let's go back to the beginning. And I will give you a single integrated way to understand the story and answer all the questions. And then I think we'll have a new perspective on what happened over here. 495. The problem is Moses disappeared. The solution has to be a replacement for Moses, of course. The question is, what is Moses? What role does he play? Moses is the key to God's power. All of God's interactions with them are mediated by Moses. The plagues take place when Moses announces them, and they stop when Moses announces they will stop. The sea splits when Moses stretches out his hand with the staff. The sea closes on the Egyptians when he stretches out his hand on the other side. All of God's interactions with them are mediated by Moses. With Moses gone, the problem is 
disconnect. The problem is that there's no longer a conduit through which God's power can reach them. That's their crisis. And they're looking for a substitute connection to God. By the way, what I'm telling you now is in the Ramban, it's in the Kuzari, and if you read all of the Rashi, it's there. If you read selected Rashi's, you could get a mistaken impression, but if you read all of the Rashi's, it's there. Okay, so now, what about using a physical object to be the connection with God, the conduit through which God's power reaches you? Using a physical, how about a statue, a golden statue? Is that a Jewish idea? Is that a possible Jewish idea? That the link with God should be a golden statue? Sounds pretty peculiar, doesn't it? Well, um, take a look. On page 447. Here I'm saved a thousand worlds because we have a picture. A box. The Aron. The box in which the tablets were stored. And the box has a cover. A cover of solid gold. And part of that gold is fashioned into the shape of two angels. The Cherubim, or Cherubim in the poor transliteration in English. The Cherubim. And the Torah says in at least three places that God communicates to Moses through the Cherubim, from the spot of the Cherubim. And on the, when the high priest on Yom Kippur goes into the Holy of Holies, where this box sits, and he presents the incense, God says, I will manifest myself to you in the spot between the Cherubim. This box becomes the lightning rod, the focus through which the interaction with God takes place. This was commanded by God. So, surprise, surprise, it seems that a statue, a representative statue, that means it's a representation of items that really exist, made of gold, could be the mediator between God and the people. But why would you do that? If Moses is missing, well, why not replace him with somebody else? You have Aaron who's available. Aaron is his brother and Aaron is, uh, is a prophet. Why would you go to a golden statue? Well, let's see. How old is Moses when this all takes place? He's 80 years old. And he went up a mountain and he's up there for 40 days and nights and he didn't take any provisions and he didn't come down. People die. It happens to everybody. So, you know, he didn't come down. Something must have happened and he's gone. Now you put Aaron in his place. How old is Aaron? 83. How long is he going to last? If your connection with God is a, is a human being, you're guaranteeing repeated crises of linkage. Far better to have a physical object, which indeed was the secondary plan that God put into place eventually, that it should be a physical object that should mediate the connection. And that's why they want a physical object which replaces Moses. Now, the solution to the problem is precisely designed to solve the problem. Moses disappeared, they need linkage, and the statue's job is to provide that linkage. Furthermore, the Torah tells us that this, the 
box, the Aron, with uh, angels on it, when they trekked through the desert, it led them. It went first. What does it say in verse 1? Make us gods that will go before us. So it seems that the function, one, as I said, the function, one function of the link is to precede them on their trek through the wilderness. And they correctly identify that what they want is a replacement for Moses, which will precede us in our trek through the wilderness. Now, if this is a link with God, you understand verse 5. Aaron calls out and says, there will be a festival to Hashem tomorrow. This is not a new religion. Ridiculous. That's nonsense. It's not a new religion. It's a new linkage with God, the same God who took us out of Egypt three months ago, which now solves the chronological problem. They're not saying this brand new God took us out three months ago. We're saying that this is a link with the God whom we recognized from before and are continuing to recognize who took us out three months ago. Furthermore, when the box with the angels on it and the rest of the tabernacle are constructed, there's a celebration inaugurating it. Just as here, Aaron says, tomorrow there'll be a celebration to, to Hashem. When they made the real link, the link that was used later, there was a celebration to inaugurate it. So everything here fits the picture that you are creating a new link to celebrate, and you're celebrating that linkage with God. That was the uh, intention of the vast, vast majority of the people. Vast majority. There was, however, a small group, very small group, who stepped over the red line and did take it as an idol. Would anyone care to opine, to suggest uh, uh, an approximate number for the group that stepped over the red line? You forgot the, the addition? 15. About 15,000, right, okay. How about the 15,000? Maybe that's the problem here. For everybody else, it was a replacement for Moses. For the 15,000, it really was taken as an idol. And therefore, they were executed. They were executed for idol worship. The 3,000 were executed by the Levites because there were witnesses who could testify that that's what they intended. They said so. They announced it. So they could be punished through earthly means. The 12,000, the number I'm making up, did it in such a way that there was no witness, so God punished them in a plague. That tiny proportion really took it as an idol, and the rest took it only as a replacement for Moses. Therefore, in verse 8, and that's why, that's not the justification, but it's the implication of changing the punctuation. The verse, verse 8 divides into two halves. The first half says, they straight quickly from the path which I commanded, they made themselves the calf. Semicolon. That's one crime. Then there's another crime, prostrating to it, offering sacrifices to it, identifying it as what took them out of Egypt. That's another crime. These two crimes were performed by different sets of people. The first was performed by the, fifth, by the vast, vast, vast majority, and that's why it comes first. So who, who, which crime was committed by the 3,000? The 15,000 is idol worship, the real idol worship. So in verse 8, God starts with the crime of the vast, vast majority. They made this thing. And then he goes on to the tiny minority who actually worshipped it. Now, Moses coming down from the mountain, I'll get there, I'll get there. Moses coming down from the mountain says, those who worshipped it as an idol, there's no way back. There's no hope for them. Those whom we know worshipped it, we're going to execute. The others, God will take care of. 
Therefore, when he goes up the mountain, he only asks for mercy for manufacturing it. That's not the crime of worship. That's a different crime. For that crime, one could ask for mercy. For the crime of worshiping it, there's no mercy, and that's why he doesn't mention it. One thing we haven't explained is, what is the crime? What is the crime of manufacturing it? All they want is a replacement for Moses. And you see that using a physical object, a statue, a representative statue, representational statue, is not impossible in Jewish terms. So what was the crime? Now let's go back to the beginning of verse 8. There was that introductory clause we didn't understand. They strayed quickly from the path which I commanded to you. The function of that clause is to explain what is the crime in the manufacture. What exactly did they do wrong? And here's the answer. They made something which I didn't command. This is a philosophical crime. Judaism is a revealed and commanded religion. It's not a religion based on religious intuition and religious inspiration and religious sensitivity and religious creativity. It's revealed and commanded. It's an injection of reality, ultimate reality, into our world. And here they're going to invent the connection with God that falsifies the underlying philosophical premise of the entire system. Now I must admit to you, uh, at this point it's a little embarrassing for me, if it's idol worship, then there's no way to get mercy for that. If it's only a philosophical crime, then, then it's more lenient, and then you could ask for mercy. As a philosopher, that hurts a little bit. You know, <laughs> Why is my crime less significant than the other crime? But that seems to be the message here, that for the philosophical crime of inventing a connection, there there could be mercy, there there could be a stay of execution, there could be a modification of the, of the punishment. Whereas for the actual crime of idol worship, there's no way back. And those of you who I'm sure are already projecting the contemporary applications of this idea, continue to project a Judaism based on human initiative and creativity is ruled out in principle here. Judaism is not made up. It's not a matter of how we can creatively mold our spiritual lives. It's a question of how we can respond to the injection of God into the world. That requires creativity also, but it's a creative response to a reality. It's not a pleasant fantasy. So, what we have here is a picture of creating a re replacement for Moses and the consequences of so doing. Of course, I left out one key element. Don't they say, make us gods? Now the time has come to question the translation. They say, make us Elohim. On 495. That word in Hebrew has many applications. The connotation of the word is power, authority, and awesomeness. Power, authority, and awesomeness. The application, what we call technically the denotation, almost always is God. Who possesses power, authority, and awesomeness? That's God. Quintessentially God. The vast majority of uses of the word refer to God, but not all. There are cases where the word refers to angels. The word is borrowed for the fantasies of other nations. Elohim Achirim is the way you refer to the other pretended gods of other nations. And, and,
and there are uses of the word which are quite different from all of those. Take a look. <coughs> On page 311. Here Moses is at the burning bush. And God says to Moses, go down to save the Jewish people. And Moses says, no, no, a thousand times no. Okay, he didn't quote Shakespeare, but that's what, you know, the idea. And finally, God says to him, I'm commanding you to go. You need help. Aaron will be your helper. Top of the page, God is speaking to, to Moses. You, Moses, shall speak to him, Aaron, and put the words in his mouth. I shall be with your mouth and with his mouth and teach you what you're both to do. He, Aaron, shall speak for you, Moses, to the people, and it will be that he will be your mouth and you will be his Elohim. It says here in the Hebrew that Moses will be Aaron's Elohim. I don't think that Moses, I'm sorry, I don't think that Aaron uh, regarded his brother as a creator of the universe. This probably wasn't Aaron's picture of his brother. Okay, he had very high respect for him, but Aaron didn't mistake his brother for God. But the word Elohim here means that Aaron looked at his brother and saw power, authority, and awesomeness because of his connection to God, because of his relationship to God. And the word Elohim is borrowed here to refer to a flesh and blood human being. Also, On page 429. Here you have a case in Jewish civil law. A gives B something to watch, and it's gone. And now they have a, con a contest. Was he negligent in the way he used it, or did he steal it, or... And A wants his money back, and B says, I'm not required. And they come to the court. Top of the page, they approach the court, and the B, who was supposed to watch it, has to swear that he didn't lay his hand on, the, on his, his fellow's property for every item of liability regarding lost objects. And this is it. Till the court shall come both their claims. Whoever the court finds guilty shall pay double to his fellow. In the Hebrew, the court is three times Elohim. The word Elohim here is used to refer to the court. Why? Because the court has power. The court has authority. The court is dispensing God's justice. So, because of its relationship to God, it deserves a term which expresses the awesomeness and the power and authority of God. Though the word here refers to flesh and blood human beings. These are two uses in the same book of Exodus. There are other usages of the same kind in other books in the Tanakh, but that's probably enough. So back in 495, I suggest to you that the translation of Elohim should not be God. The translation of Elohim should be 
this connection which will mediate God's power for the people. And the word Elohim is used because it too will possess awesomeness and a kind of authority and power because it will express God's power to the people. And indeed, one of the 613 commandments is to have awe for the link. You're supposed to have an attitude of awe towards this link with God. So, the word Elohim here is used to describe this quality of the link. And it's meant singular. The word Elohim almost always in its usage throughout the Tanakh is singular. So the translation make us gods. Actually, I like the fact that they translate it this way because it forces you to give a reason why you shouldn't translate it that way. The word here should be understood as singular, referring to the link. And even though the verb in verse 1, Yelchulafanenu, is a plural verb, the plural verb can be used for a singular item if the item is one of great authority and great awesomeness. Plural verbs are used to singular items, and I can give you cross reference for that if you like. At any rate, I think now we've answered all the questions except who are the they, which is somewhat side point. I think we've answered all the questions, and we have a consistent picture now. What the vast, vast majority of people wanted was a replacement for Moses. Their crime was inventing a connection rather than leaving it to God to supply the connection. A tiny, tiny minority were guilty of idol worship, and they indeed were executed on the spot, executed or died by the plague. And the question we started with, how could the whole people worship an idol a mere 40 days after Sinai, is one of those questions you don't have to answer because it's based on a false presupposition. It simply isn't true that the whole people worshipped an idol 40 days after Sinai. Questions on this material that I presented so far? Yeah. No, no, I said there were two groups. There was a group of people who worshipped as an idol who were publicly identified. Witnesses could come and say, I heard him say, I pledge allegiance to the new God and bow down. Then there were other people who bowed down and didn't talk. There was nobody there listening. So they worshipped that as an idol, but there was no public identification of that. And they were killed in the plague. And that covers all of the people who worshipped that as an idol. But as the Rabban says, uh, we have a census before and a census shortly thereafter, and it differs by only some thousands. So we're not talking about a big group of people. Yeah. I heard this theory that when the um, Jews were exiled from Egypt, that the ones who really were the biggest on worshipping uh, the calves as an idol were the, the mixed, like the Egyptians who were the Jews. Okay, good. You're mentioning the, the area of Rav, the, the mixed multitude. Let's do that because that answers the question that I left over. In verse 4, we had, they said, now, this is your God, these are your gods, this is the new link. Oh, Israel, which brought you out of the land of Egypt, right? Who's the they? In the context of this story, you have no clue. If all you had was the text that we read together, there'd be no way to answer this question. But, if you look back, <coughs> on 
37, the middle of the page. The children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot aside from children. Also, a mixed multitude went up with them, and flock and cattle, very much livestock. What is this mixed multitude? Now let's see how we can apply this to the text. Suppose someone told you the mixed multitude is just animals, a whole big mixed bunch of animals. Could that be right? This mixed multitude in verse 38. Could that mixed multitude be just a big mixture of animals? Why could it not? You're missing out the key word. Maybe flocking. Oh, right. Flocking cattle could be in a positive, telling you what the mixed multitude is. But it doesn't say it. It says, and. There's a mixed multitude and flock and cattle. Right? So the mixed multitude can't be animals. So then the answer is, as this fellow suggested, that it's Egyptians. Egyptians who went along, after all, the Jewish God seems to be doing well. He's on a roll, as they might say. And therefore, we should, uh, you know, join along. They came along. Now, these are people without a Jewish history, without a Jewish culture, without a Jewish uh, foundation in monotheism, who joined fellow travelers, so to speak, who joined recently because they were impressed by the miracles. Now Moses disappears, and they panic, and they suggest that maybe we better go back to the old way of dealing with the world through some kind of idol worship. But they know they can't sell that to the Jews, so they create an ambiguous proposition. They're the ones who say, you're missing your link, aren't you? So why don't you get a substitute link? And use this means of a statue. And now the statue is a double proposition. A double proposition. For the Jews, it's a link. For the mixed multitude, it's an idol. And some thousands of the Jews stray over the line because of the influence of the people who followed the, the mixed multitude. Now, all this you can get pretty straight from the text. The final step is something which we have to rely on the oral tradition for, but at least fits. And when God says to Moses, your people whom you took out of Egypt have become corrupt, God is referring to the mixed multitude. Because the Midrash says that the Egyptians were there because, God said to, uh, because Moses said to God, look, these people want to join. They want to pledge allegiance. Let's take them along. And God said, no. And Moses said, as he often did, why not? What do you mean? I mean, Moses wasn't afraid to fight with anybody, including God. What do you mean? Let's take them along. And God says, no. And Moses insists, and God says, well, it's on your head. It's on your head. It's your responsibility. And now God is calling in the note. You know, I told you. I told you not to take them. Your people, the one whom you initiated that they should be part of the group, they become corrupt and they've caused the destruction of the rest. Okay, so this, what you heard, is, is quite accurate in that, in that respect. Yeah. I'm a little bit confused on the timeline of what exactly happened. This might lead to a second question. Could you just tell us like, what happened when Moshe went up, when they actually got the Torah, when they got the commandments? Okay. Um, the majority position is this. Uh, they heard the ten, the ten pronouncements at Sinai. Everybody heard that. After that, they said to Moses, we don't want to hear anything anymore. It's too uh, difficult an experience, too frightening. From now on, we want to hear it from you. Moses went up and received the rest of the communication of the Torah in the 40 days of Sinai, and they were left down below. But the ten pronouncements they had, one of which is a prohibition against idol worship. Right? So that's on the books. Now, 
Moses comes down with the, and sees the, uh, the calf and he burns it and goes through the rest of the story. I'm waiting for the uh, question. Huh? That answered your question. Oh. Okay, good. Good. Okay, good. There's another question lurking in the woods. I thought you were going to get that one too. No, but that, that one's out. Good. Yeah, go ahead. Um, why did Hashem refer to Moshe and say to them, refer to the people as your people? If they did come along, which they did, it must have been willed. If it was willed, and once they become part of the congregation, become part of the people, then Hashem should accept them as well. Okay, you're raising an interesting and deep philosophical question. I'll answer you in one sentence, but I, I admit that this is not a fully adequate uh, exposition. And if a Jew eats a bacon cheeseburger and it happened, do I then conclude that that was God's will? I don't think so. Because he's going to be punished for it. So I don't think you can conclude, at least simpliciter, that it was God's will that he do it. So you've got to clean up the idea there a little bit. The fact that something happens doesn't mean, in simple terms, it was God's will that it happened. It can be something which God's will tolerates as a second best or third best or worst, but not so bad as to be obliterated and not be something which God um, affirms as what he wants to be. You have to have gradations in understanding how God's will applies. It's not quite so simple. Yeah. Forty years happens after this? Yeah, forty years all after so this as a result of a different crime. So is that not, could that not be the punishment of them losing faith in God? No, I, just, I just anticipated it. Right? I said as a result of a different crime. The 40 years is a result of a different crime. The crime is written okay, explicitly. The other thing, like, what I'm just wondering is, like... The spies, like, right. Just from, like, what we heard this morning from the cabal about uh, just Jacob and then, like, later on with uh, Joseph, like, the way he words stuff to try and, like, appease both sides. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, how... Well, I, I don't know Robert Kaplan's remark yeah, on like, it, but... But, uh, but like, how's it going to apply here? Like, when they just said, like, uh, this is your God, was, every way they always <laughs> worded it towards the people... It was just as if it was appeasing God, but it really meant something else to the people. Well, this, we're talking now about the Egyptian fellow travelers. They were the ones who put the proposition to the Jewish people. And they knew the Jewish people are not going to go for a new religion. So they put it in a way that, from a Jewish point of view, it made sense. Whereas they intended to use it otherwise. This is politics. You should be familiar with this. That's democratic politics. Say it to the other side to get them to agree, and then you undercut them and undermine them from, from your side and then you win, you, you know, winner takes all. And, and, and that's what they did. And then a few Jews were drawn in by that, by that deception. You had a question? Yeah. Um, is there any significance to the fact that they built a calf, not like an angel or a, anything else? There definitely is and uh, the Ramban in his commentary talks about it and the Ramban's commentary is translated into English and I recommend that you look at it there. It's based on Kabbalistic ideas. Yeah. Um, this one's really, really hard for me to to accept in all this is like the word uh, Elohim right being used in two different contexts like because I guess from what I from what I, what I understand like first time that word comes in obviously in, in the first few words of, of, of the whole Torah like can't we derive its essence from from Bereshit Bara and, and, and know what that word already means how could that word that's so it's describing the God that created the world be used as just any word. Like, it's really hard for me to understand. Okay, uh, the answer is to pay careful attention to the words that you just used. There's a difference between the meaning of a word and the designation or the application of the word, what I call the denotation of the word. In semantics, this is the, the very first step. 
A word has a meaning and the word has an application. Um, president. President has got to mean George Washington. That's when it was introduced. He's the first one to have it. How could there be another president? It's got to be Washington. That's what president means. No, president doesn't mean Washington. President means the elected leader. And it referred to Washington in certain years and it referred to other people in other years. The same word with the same meaning can refer to a variety of objects depending upon the conditions. The meaning of Elohim is power, authority, and awesomeness. That's why I referred to the connotation of the word. Now, that word can therefore refer to, denote various items when they have those qualities. You can't de deny that it referred to Moses. You can't deny that it referred to the court in both of those contexts. So you see that this book, this text, uses the word to refer to various things, although its meaning, which is its connotation, is held constant throughout. So what you learn from its first usage is its connotation, but not that doesn't fix the denotation uh, from there ever afterwards. By the way, Pharaoh, as I understand, is a Egyptian word for king. So you talk about the Pharaoh. There isn't any the Pharaoh. It's whoever's the king at the present time. Pharaoh isn't a name like George W. Bush. It's president. And therefore, when you say Pharaoh, it could be a different person each time. That doesn't mean the word means something different each time. It refers to somebody different because he is the Pharaoh of the time. Yeah. That's an interesting question. Um, you really have to appreciate Moses uh, quite deeply and quite subtly to, to, to answer that question. My wife pointed out to me decades ago, and I've asked this question of many people, I have not gotten a satisfactory answer. One of the key elements in Jewish history is when God offered us the Torah and we said, Nasa we'll take it, we'll do it, we'll understand it. Afterwards, we're giving you a blank check. We're willing to accept it because you say so without any question. And my wife asked, where do you see that quality in Moses' life? Whenever did Moses say, I don't like it, I don't agree, I don't understand, but I'll do it because you said so. That's not Moses. Whenever he doesn't like it or doesn't agree, he says so. And he fights and he objects and he argues. At the, go, at the, at the burning bush, he says, no, no, no. There's every possible objection. God answers all the objections and he says, no anyway. Right? I mean, God says you can't go into the land of, uh, of Israel. He prays 515 times until God says, stop, I don't want to hear from you anymore. I mean, that, that's the kind of person that Moses... So when Moses fights, that's his life's policy. He fights with the Jewish people when they're wrong. He fights with God when he can't agree with what, what God says. Is it a sin? I don't know. I don't know how to put it into Moses' lifeline, into his, into his life's career. Maybe God chose him, as someone told me, one of the uh, Hasidic Rebbe's, the Tamash Rebbe said, God doesn't always want a yes man. He doesn't want a yes man. Picks a person because he'll fight. Because he'll, he'll. So then it would be an expression of a quality that God wants from him. But, God says, we <laughs> argued about this, and I gave in to you, and I'm showing you that when I gave in to you, it had disastrous consequences. Right? I'm just pointing out that the word sin has to be taken very carefully in, in the context of Moses. It's, and I, I can't do the job. I'm just pointing out it's, it's, a, it's a difficult and subtle job. Yes? Um, sorry, how many different names does God have? Well, direct names, I think there are five, but then there are descriptions of qualities. Even all the names are descriptions of qualities, and you have other names which are really descriptions of qualities, so there are a lot more. So, so the name Elohim is Another name? Yes, it's one of the one of the many names. Now, I, I, I should uh, caution you. 
I, I don't want to mislead you. I, I said the word as Elohim because I used it to refer to Moses, to refer to the court, to refer to the other gods of other peoples, or as a word with an abstract meaning. When, you, when we, we use it to refer to God, we say Elohim because I don't want to use God. Yeah, then, then, we, then it has holiness when we, when, we, when we use it. But there are many na- names, and each name refers to a different quality of God's manifestation and interaction with the world. That's, uh, that's really what's going on. Okay, last question, then we've got to quit. Yeah. Well, see now, these are good questions. Um, Moses is at the burning bush. And one of the challenges he throws at God is, when I go to Egypt and they'll ask me, what is your name? What should I tell them? And that's a very peculiar question. Um, what name shall he say? Shall he say a name that the Jews know? So then his knowing it is just like everybody else knows it. Shall he say a name that they don't know? Then why should they trust him? What kind of question is that? And why should they ask, what name does he have? Or what is his name? What's the point of, the, of their query? And the answer is what I started to tell you. Each name describes a way in which God interacts with the world. When they ask, what is his name? What they want to know is, what kind of interaction is this? What are the principles and dynamics of the interaction? So, if it's a name of justice... Maybe the interaction is punishing the Egyptians for their evil. That's why he's, letting, he's going to free us. If it's mercy, then maybe it's mercy for us. And there's a big difference because mercy has to be earned. Mercy isn't free. Whereas if he's punishing the Egyptians, it has nothing to do with us. So they want to know what kind of interaction is it. What's fascinating is when, when Moses asks God, they'll, they'll, tell, they'll uh, ask me what your name is, what should I tell them? God gives Moses three answers. First he says, here's my name. Then he says, tell them another name. And then he says, tell them another name. So there are three answers. One name for Moses alone. He's just telling him. Moses didn't ask, what's your name? Moses said, what shall I answer them? But God knows that Moses also wants to know the name. That's something that God knows what Moses really wants. So he says, Moses, to you this is the name. To them this is name number one. And to them this is name number two. And if you analyze the names, you get a picture of the dynamics of the interaction of taking the Jewish people out of Egypt.